This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Several months ago in this program, we talked about how we intended to discuss the collapse of insect populations around the world. And uh, today's the day we're going to do that in our, in our second segment today when we hear from Oliver Millman, the author of The Insect Crisis, subtitled The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. It's a worthy topic and you need to stick around for it, dear listener. But I think we need to start today's program with a meme that shows a stern-looking Vladimir Putin with a caption, Putin's realizing that taking over Ukraine may not be as easy as taking over the Republican Party. I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine and the unprecedented things taking place in Europe at the moment. Well, not unprecedented. Europe's had wars before, but it hasn't had any in a while. The thing that strikes me about this war is the strange alignment of people I know on the left and right in initially... Acting like this was no big deal, well, what do you expect? Of course, Putin's acting smart and blah, blah, blah. And I find that a lot of my um, most progressive friends are sounding kind of like Donald Trump. Or at least they were at first. They're changing their tune a bit. You know, it was only on like January 19th that Joe Biden predicted that Putin would soon order an invasion of Ukraine. At the time, people thought, well, maybe, and, and we hope not. But here we are. At that time, not so long ago, the New York Times said that Biden's comment went well beyond the current intelligence assessments described by White House officials, which conclude that Putin has not made a decision about whether to invade. Yeah, maybe he was still thinking it over, but Biden didn't think so, and it turns out the president was correct. Well, it's certainly not for us to, uh, to tease out the threads of Ukrainian and Russian history that, that, that preceded all of what's, you know, all of this, but... We should say a few things. As is so often the case, The Week magazine does excellent briefing slash summaries of things going on. And the one on uh, Ukraine, titled Ukraine's Long Quest for Independence, is, is worth quoting from. First question, what is Putin's claim, was answered with, the Russian president insists that there is no separate Ukrainian nation. He declared last year in a 7,000-word diatribe, Ukrainians and Russians are one people. Yet Ukrainians have their own language, culture, and history, much of it a litany of Russian oppression. They quote historian David Taprostrakos as saying, there's been a strong impulse of Ukrainian nationalism for at least the last century. It's true that both nations trace their roots back to the first East Slavic state, Kievan Rus, which stretched from the Baltic to the Black Sea and lasted from the 9th to mid-13th century. That medieval empire was founded by Vikings. Rus is the Slavic word for red-haired Scandinavians who swept down from the north, conquered and intermarried with local Slavic tribes, and established their capital at Kiev. And I know I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but apparently it's pretty hard to get right, so we'll just go with Kiev, okay? Russians see the region surrounding Kiev as the front of their culture and religion. Vladimir the Great, as opposed to Vladimir Putin, converted it to Orthodox Christianity in the year 988, laying the foundation of the Russian church. But in the 13th century, Kiev was devastated by Mongol invaders and power shifted north to a small Rus trading outpost called Moscow. 
To the question, what happened to Ukraine? The answer was its territory was carved up by competing powers. Poland and Lithuania dominated for hundreds of years. But by the end of the 18th century, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had taken some of the West and Russians had grabbed up the rest, including the Donbass region. This is when Ukrainian identity grew in earnest. And in 1862, the Ukrainian poet Pavel Chubinsky wrote, Ukraine has not yet perished, the song that is now the national anthem. The Tsars, however, referred to their new territory as Little Russia and tried to crush the surge of Ukrainian nationalism, banning the speaking of Ukrainian in schools. After World War I, followed the collapse of the Russian and Habsburg empires, Ukraine enjoyed a spell of independence. But that lasted up until 1921, when the Red Army reconquered most of it. To the question, what was Soviet rule like? The answer was, it suffered enormously, Ukraine did under the Soviet boot. It was the largest Soviet socialist republic after Russia. Actually, I'm sure that's not true. Kazakhstan's larger. Oh, anyway, we'll forgive him for that. And vitally important, thanks to its fertile farmlands and key Black Sea ports. Stalin's brutal rule devastated Ukraine. Ask any Ukrainian about this. It's, it's still fresh in their minds. He forced collectivization of farming and brought a famine in 1932 and 1933 in which up to 7 million Ukrainians died, mostly in the country's east. Ukrainians call this tragedy the Holodomor, meaning extermination by hunger. It was Stalin who later repopulated the east of Ukraine and adjoining Crimean Peninsula with Russians. And anyway... When the USSR broke up in 1991, Ukraine again became independent. But in the West, where Ukrainians dominated, Ukrainian speakers dominated, they wanted to align the country with Europe. The Russian speakers in the East looked to Moscow. Russia tried to exploit this divide, and it continues to interfere in Ukrainian politics. To the question, how did Russia interfere? They noted that in 2004, something we talked about on this program, the Ukrainian 2004 election was a showdown between pro-Western Viktor Yushchenko and pro-Russian Viktor Yanukovych. During the campaign, Yushchenko got disfigured when he ate food poisoned with dioxin, an act widely attributed to Russia. After the vote was rigged for Yanukovych, Ukrainians rose up in the Orange Revolution, which culminated in a revolt and a victory for Yushchenko. In the 2010 election, though, Russia meddled again with the help of American political consultant Paul Manafort. Does that name ring a bell? He would later go on to chair Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. Yanukovych, his client, was able to regain the presidency. Under Russian pressure, Yanukovych canceled a trade deal that would have brought Ukraine closer to the EU, leading to another uprising that forced him out in 2014. The Maiden Revolution, or Revolution of Dignity. Enraged, Putin promptly annexed Crimea and sent covert troops into Ukraine's east to start a separatist war. And of course, those eastern regions are what Putin has used as excuse. At least 14,000 people had died before the start of the current conflict. Donetsk and Luhansk declared themselves independent republics, a break that Putin recognized a couple weeks ago, just ahead of his invasion. Putin's thesis, backed by false Russian propaganda, is that Ukrainian President Zelensky is a Western puppet heading a, quote, neo-Nazi, unquote, regime that is engaged in a, quote, genocide, unquote, of Russians within Ukraine. Zelensky, who's Jewish and a Russian speaker, countered last week with a direct appeal to the Russian people, which unfortunately did not air on Russian television. Anyway, all this and more needs to be kept in mind as we uh, look at what people are saying about 
current events. I know extremely progressive people putting out the viewpoint that, well, if we would just give Putin everything he wants, the war would stop. That's possibly true, although I don't, I don't think so. I don't think he's going to stop until he basically makes Ukraine again a colony of Mother Russia. That's my speculation, but I'd say history would certainly back me up on that. Mr. Rimland points out that giving Hitler Czechoslovakia didn't pan out too well now, did it? I do want to say that the West certainly played games with Russia and Putin. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev was promised that NATO would not be expanded up to Russia's borders, which, which is not exactly what's happened. And it certainly is provocative to imagine that Ukraine could join NATO. Most people familiar with the great world of politics, the, the great game, as it were, and uh, anyone who's ever heard of the Monroe Doctrine knows that great nations, and even less, less than great nations, tend to regard areas around them as their spheres of influence. And I know people, I, I know a guy that taught constitutional law who uh, once, once defended the Monroe Doctrine to me, which I thought was a little odd, you know, the U.S. telling the European nations that, hey, the Western Hemisphere is ours stay the hell out. But, you know, that's the Monroe Doctrine. It's easy to imagine that what Russians consider as little Russia would be part of their sphere of influence. All that said, making noise about, you know, putting Ukraine in NATO, which was always provocative, was not something that probably was likely to happen, and and certainly no excuse for the current bloodshed. And of course, swirling around a lot of this is the the alleged connection between uh, the Russian government, Vladimir Putin in particular, and um, the recent administration of Donald J. Trump. As we just mentioned, his, his campaign manager back in 2016 helped engineer the um, pro-Russian candidate winning in Ukraine back in 2010. We would note that David Korn, writing in Mother Jones, said that, well, Trump is in Putin's pocket. Korn notes that Trump acted like a Russian asset, repeatedly attacking and dividing NATO, portraying Putin as a potential ally of the U.S., and denying a mountain of proof. <laughs> I love this part. Well, denying a mountain of proof that his buddy interfered in the 2016 election. Even when Trump was caught and impeached for blackmailing Ukraine over defensive weapons which had already been approved by Congress, Republicans assisted or excused their leader's profound betrayal. Remember Trump appearing on the same dais in Helsinki with Putin and <laughs> telling the world, well, I asked him if he interfered in my election. He, he said no. Good enough for me. And it's not like Trump is altering his position on what a great guy Putin is. A couple of weeks back, given a chance, Trump took the headline-grabbing route, describing what's going on and, and declaring Vladimir Putin very savvy for his invasion and that his decision to roll the army into separatist-held parts of Ukraine Genius. Yes, apparently noting Putin's strategy of falsely calling his troops peacekeepers, Trump told an interviewer, that's pretty savvy. Adding, that's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. Adding, there are more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep the peace all right. Sometimes you just have to pause and say, you just can't make this kind of stuff up. Trump has still offered no words of condemnation for a regime threatening the worst military conflict in Europe since World War II. And he's violated a very long-standing rule in American politics of attacking the current president as he struggled to deal with a war against one of America's friends. We do need to remind you that Congress had approved military aid to Ukraine before Donald Trump called up Zelensky to ask for some help in finding dirt on Hunter Biden, uh, or, or he might just hold back on delivering some of the goods that Congress had already approved. 
He got impeached for that, although his Republican Party certainly covered for him. Of course, it isn't only Trump. Former Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called Putin an elegantly sophisticated leader who deserves enormous respect. Fox News empty head, oh, excuse me, talking head Tucker Carlson minimized Russia's aggression as a border conflict and suggested his viewers should view woke liberals and not Putin as the real enemies. Happily, it does seem that at least some Republicans are waking up and smelling the coffee. After Trump appeared at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, on February 26th, and snuck in that Mr. Putin was playing Joe Biden like a drum, at least some, at least some Republicans started to consider, you know, the sanity of this position of DJT. The Lexington, the Lexington column in The Economist notes that Republican voters who felt warmly toward Mr. Putin under Mr. Trump have swung hard towards Ukraine. So have Republican politicians, with a fervor, illustrated by the blue and yellow flags many wore to the State of the Union address this last week. That would recently have been unimaginable, said Lexington. Two years ago, they dismissed Mr. Trump's guns for political favors shakedown Volodymyr Zelensky as a nothing burger. Now they demand that Mr. Biden do even more to support the Russian leader than he's doing. Does this mean people are turning on Donald Trump? By people, we mean his ardent supporters. I was really confused to note that Roger Stone, the man possibly more responsible than anybody else you can think of for the Trump presidency, uh, denounced Donald Trump. For two years now, Roger Stone has been filmed by Danish filmmakers for a documentary, A Storm Foretold. It's to be released later this year. On camera, Roger Stone was seen railing at Trump. But when you read into the description of what this is all about, apparently he was railing at Trump because Trump did not issue him a, a second pardon for the January 6th insurrection. Well, when I say second pardon, he wasn't exactly pardoned for his criminal conviction, but uh, the sentence was, I believe, I forget the term for it, reduced. He got a get-out-of-jail-free card, I can tell you that. Of course, we should note that in this documentary, they filmed uh, Roger Stone meeting and corresponding with members of a far-right militia discussing a plan in which Trump would issue a blanket pardon to co-conspirators in the attempt to overturn the election, Senator Ted Cruz and Congressman Jim Jordan among them. He says on camera that Jared Kushner, Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law and close observer, should be punished in a way that would leave him brain dead, and suggested that violence against protesters for racial justice would be possible with the election out of the way. Stone reportedly says on camera, once there's no more election, there's no reason why we can't mix it up. Those people are going to get what they've been asking for. Of course, I read here, this, the word I'm looking for is commuted. Trump commuted the three-year sentence that was handed to Stone. Does this mean that people like Roger Stone are turning on Trump? I would say don't, don't bet on that. I think I'm in need of, of a change up here. Let, 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 let's take a break from these grim subjects and do a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for payback after a Ukrainian mechanic opened valves and partially sank the $7.7 million luxury superyacht owned by his boss, Alexander Miki, the CEO of a Russian weapons company. 
Taras Ostapchuk, 55, told police in Mallorca, Spain, my boss is a criminal who sells weapons that kill the Ukrainian people. After being arrested and then released, he left to fight in Ukraine. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for gun control with the news that a Houston man allegedly opened fire at restaurant workers after he said they didn't give him enough barbecue sauce with his takeout order. Evidently, Andre Thomas, age 36, called Dickie's Barbecue Pit to complain he'd been shorted on sauce. Police say he waited in the parking lot for workers to leave, firing at them in their car, breaking one worker's arm and missing the other. And it was an ugly week last week for, I guess you'd have to say, wokeness, with the news that a black student at Harvard who broke a bone in his foot didn't realize for a day that he'd done so. He blamed this on white supremacy. Writing in the Crimson Student newspaper, Gordon Ebanks said he assumed he'd merely suffered a sprain because society had taught him that my pain didn't matter. A doctor who x-rayed Ebanks' foot the next day informed him that, in fact, he did have a fracture. There seems to be no evidence as to whether the doctor weighed in on the possible cofactor role that white supremacy may have played in the injury. And here's an item about New York's mayor that we don't know whether it's good or whether it's bad or it's ugly. It seems to be all three somehow, but here's the story. Eric Adams, New York's new mayor, wants to be the Zen mayor of New York City. The New York Times reports that on the surface, the Big Apple's new leader is a tough, talking former police captain. But he's also a vegan cookbook author, an astrology follower, and a reader of self-help books with titles like Becoming supernatural. Mr. McMillan? Yes, apparently Mayor Adams praises the healing powers of spices. He shares a mediation mentor with Oprah Winfrey, and he works out every day in his city hall office. He says, we all breathe incorrectly because we were never taught breathing. I have to admit, I've never been taught breathing. Adams apparently practices alternate nostril breathing, which I confess I know nothing about. He's quoted as saying, it's not a myth. Cops like donuts. But when type 2 diabetes impaired his vision and threatened his health, he switched to a plant-based diet. That was back in 2016. Now as the city's second black mayor, he's trying to turn people of color away from an unhealthy staples like soul food. That's going to work. And has instituted vegan Fridays in public schools. And I bet that's popular. It's apparently part of his plan to, quote, bring the calmness, unquote, to the city of New York. While some New Yorkers find his promotions of his own dietary and lifestyle choices rather bizarre, Mayor Adams is unapologetic. He says, I'm constantly evolving. Who I am today is not who I am tomorrow. And who knows who will be the day after tomorrow. All right, another health-related news. Uh, It turns out that the anti-parasitic drug ivermectin, touted as a wonder drug by many Republicans, oddly enough, is appearing to be entirely ineffective in treating severe cases of COVID-19, according to a new study done by researchers in Malaysia. They looked at 490 COVID patients, 50 and older, all of whom were considered high risk because of their age and underlying health. Half were put on ivermectin for five days, while the other half received fever-reducing medications and other routine treatments for symptoms. The researchers found there was little difference in outcomes between the two groups. 
They did note, though, that the ivermectin takers had more side effects, including heart attacks. <laughs> Great. And anemia. Anyway, back to Ukraine, I guess. A curious aspect of this conflict is that, well, cyber war and cyber attacks are being used as never before. It appears that the Estonians, who are, I think, the, possibly the most digitally connected people on Earth, I suppose, uh, the, along with the South Koreans, have been helping the Ukrainians um, create a volunteer hacker corps to counter the Russian cyber attacks. The reports are that while Russia's banking sector uh, has been well fortified against attacks, some telecom and communication networks and rail services were not. And we could probably do a whole show on Russian cyber attacks, including some of the things that took place in the 2016 election, but uh, not today. Do a little item that I've been sitting on since last October. A quote from the Novaya Gazeta, independent newspaper in Russia, whose publisher recently shared the Nobel Prize. Author Kirill Martinov said that the Kremlin has a new ally in its battle against democracy, the American tech firms. In a run-up to last week's parliamentary elections, this of course was last October, many Russians had planned to use the smart voting protest strategy promoted by jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The goal was to inflict as many losses as possible on the ruling United Russia Party by having all opposition voters back the same candidate in a given district, no matter whether the candidate was communist or ultra-nationalist or liberal democratic. But just days before the first ballots were cast, Apple and Google yanked an app from their stores that had been designed to coordinate protest votes. The Kremlin had threatened the companies, at least their Russia-backed employees with prosecution. But, said Novaya Gazeta, Google and Apple should have stood firm. Well, maybe so. You know, we're still in a bit of a state of shock over how the Manhattan DA's investigation into Donald Trump has been apparently derailed. I did have a brief uh, brief chat with uh, Stephen Harper about this, and he, <laughs> I said, it looks like the fix is in. He says, well, it certainly is curious what's happening. We take the position here at Radio Parallax that until proven otherwise, Alvin Bragg, the successor to Cyrus Vance Jr. as Manhattan's district attorney, has had the fix put in on him. It's funny, too, the New York Times wrote about this on the 5th of March, and the Week magazine, dated one day earlier, which, of course, is really more one week earlier, had uh, quoted Stephen Collison in CNN.com as noting that, well, the former president's sinking deeper and deeper into a legal swamp that threatens his viability as a 2024 presidential candidate. Yeah, and then Alvin Bragg got involved. This is like the Mueller report. There was all this talk about what, uh, what was going to come along that would derail Trump, and it looks like somehow he may dodge the bullet again. Of course, some of that dodging the bullet came courtesy of uh, Attorney General Bill Barr issuing a summary of the Mueller report that was not necessarily what was in the Mueller report. Barr has got a new book out titled One Damn Thing After Another, in which he argues that America needs leaders who can frame and advocate for an uplifting vision of what it means to share in American citizenship and says that Donald Trump isn't temperamentally capable of such a task. This caused Michael Cohn to write a piece for MSNBC as an opinion columnist saying, in related news, Bill Barr is shocked, shocked to learn there's gambling going on in Casablanca. You know, Mr. Miller, we might want to get Michael Cohn on this program. Maybe we could get him. 
Yeah, he was a bit of a crook. He was a Trump lawyer, but when Trump turned on him and, you know, basically threw him under the bus, he sort of had a come-to-Jesus moment, which is still going on, apparently. And in other news about dodging legal responsibilities, we're still, uh, we're still pondering the matter of the Supreme Court of the United States refusing to hear the appeal of Bill Cosby being released from prison. And uh, that means that Cosby is a free man and apparently uh, apparently not really subject to um, further prosecutions, except maybe under, you know, those civil liberty type uh, federal charges. I was especially horrified in reviewing the matter of Bill Cosby to, well, currently on A&E, there's a special on Playboy, which is pretty hard hitting. There was one called American Playboy that was on another streaming service, uh, American Playboy, a very, a very pro sort of perspective at the history of Playboy magazine and Hugh Hefner with, with a few negative moments. But boy, has the pendulum flipped in this new A&E series. In this, uh, the view of Playboy and Hefner in particular has a few positive moments, but only a few. There's quite a revelation in there about the behavior of Mr. Bill Cosby, among them the fact that he used to drug people with quaaludes. Now, by the time I was in medical school, quaaludes were pretty much out the door. But I guess somebody somewhere must still be manufacturing them because the evidence suggests that Bill Cosby was still date rating up till like 2008 using them. I have to say that uh, anyone who's interested in the history of sexuality in America and Playboy's role in it should probably watch both uh, documentary series. On this program, upon the passing of, of Hugh Hefner, we, we had a few uh, things to say about him, many of them positive, and I have to say I'm giving a lot of that a big old second thought. The evidence for what a vile self-centered, narcissistic, pathological personality that he really was is uh, um, kind of overwhelming. And when I looked up on uh, Wikipedia, a summary of Bill Cosby's uh, sexual charges, I was stunned to see there were 60 people listed. One of the people on that list is a friend of a friend of this program, and we put forth the idea that perhaps she may want to come on and speak with us about what she knows. I don't know if that's going to happen, but we're going to give it a shot. I have to say, the evidence for Bill Cosby's guilt is just so incredibly overwhelming that it's, it's deeply disturbing to realize that he doesn't have to face the music uh, justice-wise over this because, well, in many cases, um, the statute of limitations for rape had long passed. And, of course, Donald J. Trump faces uh, charges of, of rape. He's trying to now sue his accuser uh, as, as, a, as a stalling technique something he's a master of, and um, I guess the judge is not having it. We'll, we'll see where that goes. We wonder if Trump isn't seeing if he can't find a way to get uh, Alvin Bragg involved in, uh, in that particular legal matter. Maybe he and Bill Cosby can reach out to, uh, to D.A. Bragg together. Be interesting. want to note as we wrap up uh, this segment that yours truly is now reading his fifth book by Sterling Seagrave, which are all page-turners, all packed to the gills with revelations that we need to talk about on this show, but it ain't going to happen today. But oh my God. Stay tuned for more on that. We need to take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the insect apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> 